Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. No, just joking. We are not going to Ephesians today. I invite you to turn to the Old Testament as we are going to begin a sermon series through the book of Jonah. This morning we are going to introduce Jonah by looking at the first three verses uh, and connecting those first three verses of Jonah um, with the passage that is found in 2 Kings 14 and a passage from the very end of Jonah so that we can get the big picture this morning. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read uh, from 2 Kings 14, then Jonah, uh, from Jonah 1, 1 through 3, and then Jonah 3, 10 to 4, 4. This is the word of our Lord. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to, uh, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found uh, a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. When God saw how the Ninevites repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And Jonah was angry. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, help us as we come before your word throughout this sermon series on Jonah to not get caught up about a fish, but instead to get caught up with facing our own prejudices and the desires of our own hearts when it comes to how you relate to sinners. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I said Jonah, how many people thought of the VeggieTales? I might be dating myself a little bit there. If you go to Amazon or if you go to ChristianBook.com or if you go to the uh, uh, Westminster Bookstore, if you look up, Uh, books, especially children's books about the book of Jonah, almost every single one of them, without fail, have a picture of the fish on the cover. When I said Jonah, how many of you thought big fish or big whale? That tends to be the the way that, that, that we connect with the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is one of the most well-known books of the Bible in terms of this idea of a fish. It is probably the, well, the, the least known book of the Bible by those who actually want to follow Jesus. Because for so many of us, when we think of Jonah, we think of this fish and we get caught up into the thoughts and conversations of, well, could a man be swallowed by a fish and still live? And it is so easy to get distracted from what is really going on in the book of Jonah because what God wants us to do is not focus on a fish. He wants us to focus on our own hearts when it comes to the issues of serving him when it's not comfortable. He wants us to wrestle with our own hearts with regards to what we truly want for sinners. What do you want? What do you want for sinners? Not and, and, and look, not the good sinners, right? Because we all have that, right? We all have, wrestle with that designation. There are the good sinners, and then there are the real sinners, the wicked sinners. And when it comes to like the good sinners, it's like, well, you know, it's okay if God is gracious to one of the good sinners because they're not horrible. But to the, the most wicked of the wicked, no, that no, they should not receive grace. They should not receive mercy. They should get justice. Ever wrestled with that? What do you want for sinners? This book is not about a fish. It's about what do the people of God want for unbelievers? How do we respond to God's compassion even for the most wicked? Not just the good sinners that it's okay for him to be gracious to, 
but especially for the worst of sinners. See, this is what Jonah is wrestling with as he wrestles with God's scandalous grace. Now, we just went through a letter from Paul to the Ephesians that that highlights the extravagance and the heavenly nature, the eternal realities of, of, of his grace and what it means to be a recipient of that grace and to have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. But sometimes we forget the extravagant of that grace also leads it to be scandalous. And so here Jonah wrestles, and here God wants his covenant people to wrestle with the true scope and scandal of his grace. Now to help us do this, uh, the, the book of Jonah uses a lot of humor and satire. If you have been coming to the C.S. Lewis book club, we we are seeing that in in the screw tape letters. And as we talked about in there, satire is often a very helpful form of literature because it addresses really deep and dark and difficult things, but it does it does it from a a perspective that helps helps someone for it not to be so heavy, for it not to be so weighty. And not because they're not heavy or weighty concepts, but because we tend to want to get away and distance ourselves from the heavy and from the weighty. And so if you can make it lighter and if you can make people chuckle, it is actually a very effective way of getting them to wrestle with things that they would choose not to wrestle with otherwise. If you can paint a picture that seems so absurd that that people can chuckle at it, it actually helps uh, to remove the defense mechanism and can actually help us interact with the concepts there in a way that we will be willing to personalize the absurdities being described. And that's what God is doing with the book of Jonah. Now, right here, just in our very opening three verses, he does this multiple times in multiple ways. First, we are told that, that this book is, is, is about words that came from Yahweh to Jonah. Do you get it? Oh, all right, maybe you don't get it yet. So, Because you all know the story. Jonah, the prophet, who doesn't want to go, who flees and then gets angry, right? So Jonah, his name means dove, a symbol of peace, a symbol of God's presence. Jonah, this, this one named dove, is also described as the son of Amittai. This is a, 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 a variation of the Hebrew word emeth, which is used as one of the key words for describing who God is throughout the Old Testament as, as Yahweh is described as the God of, of emeth wachesed, 
faithfulness and love. Jonah, the dove, is the son of the faithfulness of Yahweh. Do you get the joke now? This prophecy is about someone who is, who is described in terms of peace and God's presence, and he is described as the son of God's faithfulness. And as you hear that, you then watch as this peaceful presence of God that represents his faithfulness does the exact opposite of all of it. We are also caught off guard here by the very beginning of the book. Now, once again, in the Hebrew, the way Hebrew narrative works, there are certain key words that, that drive the way a narrative unfolds. And the very first word here in Jonah is a word that is, is used to show the continuation of a previous narrative. But these are the very opening words of the book. And so that, if you're reading this in Hebrew, this is very startling. This is like, whoa, hold up. We're, we're, wow, we went from nothing to, to, you know, that God's word in, in connection to something else, that God's word is coming to this person, Jonah, the son of Amittai. And, and what many believe is that this is connected to the first time that Jonah is mentioned back in 2 Kings 14, where Jonah there is described as a prophet of Yahweh, who goes and speaks to the king to let the king know that Yahweh is going to bless and expand the borders of this kingdom back to where they were under the reign of Solomon. But do you remember how that king and how his kingdom was described when we read 2 Kings 14? God goes out of his way to make us to, to make sure that we realize that the king is evil and that he has led his kingdom into every form of evil. And yet, even though the king is evil, and even though the kingdom is evil, God has decided to bless it. Now that's rather scandalous, unless you think that it makes sense for God to bless Israel despite their sin and wickedness. And this is one of the most um, prevalent postures of the people of God in the Old Testament. That because they were in covenant with the Lord, because there was a temple with the Lord's presence in it, they thought it doesn't matter what we do, God's in a covenant with us. And one of the things that you see throughout the Old Testament is that they're quite comfortable sinning against God and then crying out for his mercy, and they're quite comfortable receiving that mercy. But the question for us is, should we be comfortable with sinners and wicked rebels 
receiving mercy? It's a tricky question, isn't it? I'm not asking, do you want sinners to receive God's compassion? I'm asking you that when it comes to the covenant people of God, does it scandalize you that God blesses wicked people? Or do you just kind of take it for granted? Well, apparently Jonah has been taking it for granted because Jonah apparently does not give up a fight to, to Yahweh about Yahweh blessing an evil and wicked king and kingdom. In fact, the testimony that we have from, uh, from Jonah in, in Jonah chapter 4 is that Jonah knows that God is a God of compassion. He cites there, by the way, the the text from Exodus 34, where God himself has described himself as a God of compassion and grace and love. Jonah is accepting what God has revealed of himself in Exodus, he also has accepted that God has revealed this of himself in relationship to this evil king and this wicked kingdom. I knew, I knew you would be gracious. And what does this prophet of grace think about the graciousness of the Lord when it comes to the Lord blessing Gentiles? He doesn't like it at all. In fact, it makes him angry. Now, this helps us to see another problem that existed within Israel at the time that God was attempting to address. Not only the problem of their own lack of holiness and the way that they took advantage of his grace, but also the problem that their lack of holiness created. And that was a problem where they were not able to embody God's truth, goodness, and beauty to the Gentile nations. They received these things, these blessings from God, as part of God's plan of recovering the nations that had been sent out from the land of Shinar there at the Tower of Babel. God's purposes, going back to Genesis 3.15, his purposes have been to provide salvation for a people, not salvation for the ethnic geopolitical nation of Israel. The promises of grace go back to before Israel ever existed. They go back to before Abraham ever existed. And yet, as God is showing us in Genesis 11 that the flood of Genesis 6 had not cured the world or humanity of its sin, we see once again that humanity are, are holding themselves together. They are sticking together. They are not doing what God, told the, what God told people to do in Genesis 9 after the flood where he said to disperse and to go and to be fruitful and to multiply and go throughout the earth. They're not doing that. They are sticking right where they are. 
And they are working together in their rebellion to not only fight against going out through all the earth, they are building a temple in which they can achieve for themselves their own Godhead. And so God, in his mercy, breaks this up, confuses language, and sends them out into the world. But then, in Genesis 12, calls a man whose purpose is to be blessed by God in order that the blessing can go to all the nations that have been spread out throughout the world in Genesis 11. Do you see what's happening? The nation of Israel, when they were saved from slavery in Egypt and when they were brought into the promised land and when they were given the oracles of God and when they were given the temple and given the sacrificial system and all of these wonderful blessings from God, they were given this so that they could show gratitude to God by by embodying his truth and his holiness, his goodness and his beauty. They could have the sacrificial system where they could live safely with the Lord and they were called to do this in order to draw the nations to God himself. The problem is for the covenant people of God at the time in which Jonah is ministering is instead what they have done is they've taken these blessings and they've said, well, because we have them, we are superior. And we are the only people that God cares about. And so rather than than living according to God's holiness, so that they could be used by God to draw the nations to himself. They have instead, they are trying to hoard the blessings of God, even as they take advantage of God in the process, and they do not want to see those blessings go to those wicked, horrible sinners outside of Israel. And at the beginning of this book, we have God's word that comes out of nowhere and says, Go to the most wicked people that you can think of today. Have you ever felt that same confrontation from God's word? To go and to embody his love and his compassion, his mercy, by warning someone in order to draw them out of death and into life? Not just the people that you think are good, are good candidates for the gospel. Right? When we're, when, we're, when we're getting to know people or when we're out in public and, and, and you have that opportunity of talking with someone, not just the person that seems to be comfortably religious that I can have a religious conversation with, but, but with the most difficult the most aggressive, the most, the most difficult aggressive person that, that in their atheism or agnosticism are making fun of you for your faith. Can, can you in that situation ignore the, 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 the pressure, ignore the difficulty? It's hard, isn't it? It was hard for Jonah. 
Nineveh, as it is described as a great city here, it doesn't necessarily mean its size. In fact, at this point in history, Nineveh is not even the capital of the Assyrian kingdom. But it is a place that, that, was, that, was, that was representative of, of the Assyrian kingdom. It was representative of the Assyrian uh, pursuit of power and riches that they were obtaining through incredible, incredible violence. Where they would come in and and they would conquer a city or they would conquer a region and they would take the leaders and bring them together in front of the people who lived there. And they would take them and they would fillet them. in order to convince the people, don't mess with the Assyrians, do what they say. Being filleted alive. They would cut off heads and put them on pikes and for miles and miles around every direction that you could come to the city, you would have to pass by these these pikes with heads on them. They were an incredibly violent People and they used their violence to intimidate and to take control and power and wealth and riches and they would take whole people groups and take them away from their land purposefully force men from the from other nations to have children with the women in order to not just take the people out of their land but to breed their people out of existence and God says up, it's time to go. And so what does this prophet do as he receives this commission by God? To, to, it says, it says in, in the ESV to arise. It literally says in the Hebrew, just up. You need to get up. And I'm going to send you up to Assyria, which was north, up to Nineveh, which was north of where Jonah was at the time. Up. I'm going to send you up. Why? Because their evil has come up to me. Lots of ups. And so what does Jonah do? He gets up. All right. The prophet's getting up. He's embracing his commission. He's going to go take the word of Yahweh to these people in the north. But what does Jonah do? He gets up in order to flee. And then we are told that he goes down he descends to Joppa and then he buys a fare in order for him to get on a boat and go to Timbuktu now for them it was Tarshish for us it would be Timbuktu I don't even know if Timbuktu is real and I don't know where it is but I know this when I want it when I want to describe the idea of going as far away from anything that I know is possible, I'm going to describe it in terms of going from here to Timbuktu. Well, for if you lived at the time of Jonah, that would be Tarshish. Now, we're not exactly sure where Tarshish was. Many think it was as far west of Carthage, which would be modern-day Tunisia. Many believe that it was as far west of Spain and that it was actually on the western side of the Strait of Gibraltar meaning the exact opposite end of the Mediterranean Sea. You could not go in any more opposite of of a direction within the known world 
for Jonah. Isaiah 66 tells us that, that Tarshish, it describes Tarshish as being an area in which God's fame and glory were not yet known. And that is why it says here that Jonah, in order to avoid his commission, because he knows that God is a gracious God and he doesn't want God to be gracious to the Ninevites, he, instead of going up, he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the boat in order that he can go to Timbuktu. How far have you gone before? But better yet, how far have we gone before? Because the purpose that Jonah serves here in this little prophecy is that he is not representing us as individual Christians before God. He is representing the church, the covenant people as a whole. So what's our history like? Is the covenant people known for delighting in going to the most difficult enemy that we can think of in order to share love and grace? Are we known for, for, for the, the pleasure of, of taking delight and becoming uncomfortable and filling our churches with people who are the exact opposite of us? What's our history? How, what are we known for? And I'm not saying this to condemn and, and to, to point fingers. I'm saying that this is a, a very real issue for us as the people of God to seriously take into consideration that we need to wrestle with our own hearts when it comes to the desires that we have for sinners even our enemies, even the most wicked, for them to receive the same treatment of grace that we receive. And to not do it because we think we deserve it, so it's okay for them to deserve it. But to embrace the reality that you and I do not deserve it. And because we don't deserve it, and yet God has been pleased to give it, maybe God would be pleased to give it to someone else who doesn't deserve it. And so what do you want? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for this church? Do you want God to bless us, but not bless others? Or do you want to receive God's blessing so that we might be a blessing to those who are outside these walls who are very different from us. The good news here, beloved, is that the mission of God is not dependent on the irony of a prophet named the son of God's faithfulness who is anything but faithful. Because the hope of the nations and the hope for this church and the hope for your heart rests in another prophet who was the son of God's faithfulness, not jokingly, but actually. Where Jesus Christ, on the night before he went to the cross, 
instead of saying to the Lord, I don't want to do this because I don't want them to receive grace. I don't want to do this because they're not worthy to receive grace. I don't want to do this. Instead, he honestly prays, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And for the joy that was set before him, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter four, in chapter 12, for the joy that was set before Jesus, Jesus embraced the final act of his mission in filling up to the fullness of the cup of his father's wrath against your and my sins. And he drank every last drop of that wrath for us so that our cups may overflow with God's love and with his grace. Beloved, let us wrestle honestly with our own heart's desires when it comes to doing ministry to our enemies because of the overwhelming grace that we have received in our Savior who willingly left his glory in the heavenly places to take on flesh, to become a servant, and to serve even to the point of death so that you and I might have a heavenly inheritance that we do not deserve and that we can serve as ambassadors of that grace to others who don't deserve it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take your word and impress it upon our hearts and our minds and our wills this morning as as we struggle, as we struggle, Lord, to love our enemies as Christ loved us. And so fill us with your word and, and, and take your sacrament here that is before us and help us to touch and to taste Help us to see and to feel the Christ who came near, who willingly suffered and was broken and had his blood poured forth so that we would not have to receive your curse, but instead may taste of that blessing. And so help us indeed to taste afresh that you are good, that in tasting afresh we might renew our commission to take your word to a lost and dying generation, not just to those sinners that we think are worthy to hear from us and certainly not just those sinners that we think won't make it too difficult for us, but help us to be willing to entrust ourselves to take your gospel to our enemies. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.